Thank you. This is the second of three resurrection reports that we find in John chapter 20. So if you have, you, if you have your Bible, then you might want to find John chapter 20. A little bit of it will come up behind me in a minute. But let me tell you the story. The disciples were terrified. They'd been scared and confused for the last few days. And it led them to be hiding together, trembling behind a locked door. You see, only a couple of days ago, Jesus, their leader, their teacher, their friend and Messiah had been falsely arrested, had been unfairly tried, and had been brutally crucified. And through this unlikely coalition of the Jewish authorities, of their Roman overlords, and of this toxic mob, this dynamic in the crowd that was baying for Jesus' lynching. You see, the disciples in that moment had deserted Jesus. But now, his body was missing. His body had gone. Early that morning, some of the women, and then Peter and John also, had discovered that the tomb was empty and the grave clothes abandoned. And now the disciples were the prime suspects for the Jewish, Jewish authorities who were looking to verify their conspiracy theory that Jesus' disciples had faked Jesus' resurrection. And then they started hearing all these stories. All day, in fact, they've been trying to make sense of these reports that have been coming in about Jesus being alive. We heard last week, Mary Magdalene came in. She said, I've seen the Lord. I had mistaken him for a gardener. And then Cephas and another rushed back from Emmaus saying, we've seen the Lord. We walked with him. We talked with him. We ate with him, having mistaken him for a fellow traveler. And then suddenly Jesus appeared. He stood right there in their locked room with them. And he said to them, peace be with you. And he showed them the wounds in his hands where the nails had gone to pin him to the cross. And the wound in his side where a spear had been thrust to verify his death. And the mood changed in the room. And they were filled with joy. They were overcome with joy. And then Jesus said and did a few other little things I want us to look at and focus on this morning. You'll find them in verse 21 of chapter 20 in John. It'll be behind me. Again, Jesus said, peace be with you. As the Father sent me, so I am sending you. And with that, he breathed and said, receive the Holy Spirit. He went on, if you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Heavenly Father, as we look at this little passage this morning, I pray it will come to life for us. You would teach us by your Holy Spirit and show us things. Give us insight and revelation. And Lord, change us, gift us with faith and motivation to continue doing what you've asked us to. In Jesus' name, amen. You see, everyone is looking for peace. 
The hippies of the 60s were looking for peace. Maybe some of them were in this room now, I don't know. John Lennon, if you remember him, sang, Imagine all the people living life in peace. Miss World contestants typically say they're looking for world peace to try and get the points to win the prize. The bereaved often write in flowers or on stone or in cards, RIP, rest in peace. One of the most highly acclaimed awards in this world is the Nobel Peace Prize, which has been awarded to 130 different individuals or organizations in the last century. Did you know that 8.2 million Britons are diagnosed each year with anxiety disorders? People are being drawn to Buddhist techniques as a way of trying to think themselves, even relax themselves, into a state of peace. There's a film coming out, but after 24 other films, I don't think Marvel's end game will be the end game, will it? No, there'll be another 20 films still to come, because still are the superheroes trying to bring order and peace to the galaxy. For someone's uh, money, I'm sure. We look in our newspapers, we hear of stories and accounts in other nations where there is a lot of war and conflict. Peace is needed in the Yemen, in Somalia, in Kashmir, in Myanmar. Peace is needed between husbands and wives. The divorce laws have been changed this week, I think, to be made it, make, make it a little bit easier, just to kind of reduce some of the conflict between husbands and wives who want to separate. We need peace on our streets. There's an endemic of knife crime going on, particularly in our cities. We need peace. Everyone is looking for peace. And my main point for you this morning about this passage we've looked at is that peace is only possible by being born again. Peace is only possible by being born again. You see, peace is the emphasis of this little account. Luke tells us the same, uh, tells us the same occasion, but focuses on different details. But for John, the peace emphasis is there as he writes this. The very first words that Jesus said, he had two days to think about them in the tomb, if you like, were these, peace be with you. And John, just to help us kind of focus on it, has contrasted the peace that Jesus pronounces with the context of fear that disciples were in in that moment, trembling behind the locked doors, gripped with fear. And to make sure we don't simply dismiss Jesus' greeting as mere pleasantries, John tells us again, Jesus said, verse 21, peace be with you. He repeats it. When anything's repeated in the Bible, I think we're meant to pay particular attention. In fact, it comes three times. If we read on, we'll look at this next week in verse 26. When Jesus appeared again to the disciples, this time also with Thomas, he said it again, peace be with you. You see, peace is a major theme of the gospel. It's a major theme of the good news of Jesus Christ. The likely um, greeting that Jesus used here was shalom, 
which is a much fatter, broader word in definition than is translated peace in our English. Shalom means uh, more than the absence of war, the absence of fear. It, it talks about complete well-being of mind, of body, and of soul. It, it really is a summary word of all of God's blessings, all of his benevolence, all of the benefits one can receive from God is in the shalom, in the peace of God. And, and this peace is, yes, for the individual, but it is also to affect society and community and national life. And it's to be eternal and forever. And it's this holistic hope for peace that Jesus, I believe, is inaugurating in this very moment that we've read this morning. We shouldn't be surprised that peace is a major theme here because it is throughout Jesus' life. When Jesus was born, the angels sang, glory to God in the highest heavens and peace on earth on whom his favor rests. Peace of God on earth is what the angels sang when Jesus was born. One of the things Jesus fulfilled from the Isaiah prophecy that was that this God-man saviour would be the prince of peace. And Jesus is that for us. And we shouldn't be surprised that peace is a theme for Jesus because it'd been a theme for Jesus already as he's been training and speaking to his disciples. Just a few chapters earlier, he said to them, peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. In chapter 14 of John, then a couple of chapters later, chapter 16, I've told you these things, all this teaching of mine, everything I've trained you in, all these things I've shown you, are so that in me you may have peace. In me you may have peace. It's all about peace. That's an angle of the gospel. And that continues throughout our New Testament, throughout the rest of our book. The, the message of Christianity is summarized as this, the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. The gospel of peace, it lists in the armor of God in Ephesians 6. Every one of Paul's letters to the different churches starts with this expression, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So peace is a theme of the whole Bible. We shouldn't be surprised that they are the words of Jesus as he rose from the dead and met with his friends. And the important question I want us to grapple with today is what exactly is going on for the disciples here? What actually happened to them in this moment? And, and there's been a lot of debate and there's been a lot of disagreement over the centuries amongst Christians about exactly what's been happening here. But it's not something I think we need to fall out over, but we do want to understand as best we can what was happening then. And I think there are broadly four options for us to choose from. First one is that the disciples were baptized by the Spirit in this moment. The second option is that they were partially baptized in, by the Holy Spirit right in this moment. Thirdly, the third option is nothing actually happened. But there was a, an assurance of the promise of the baptism of the Spirit to come. And fourthly, it is that the disciples in this moment were born again. Let's look at each of those in terms. Were they baptized by the Spirit? I can't see that. 
I can't see it. You have to do some mental gymnastics. You have to stand on your head and squint with both eyes if you're going to try and reconcile this passage of the first pouring out of the Holy Spirit with Luke's in Acts chapter 2, which we've been looking at over preceding weeks. They just don't match. Chronologically, they don't fit at all easily. Were they partially baptized in the Spirit then? Well, again, I can't see it. There's nothing elsewhere in in the Bible really to support a sprinkling of the Holy Spirit as opposed to a baptism in the Holy Spirit. There's not that extra stage, if you like, in the biblical experience. And there's no evidence here for these disciples that they were partially baptized in the Spirit. There's not even some of the courage that flowed from Acts chapter 2 when at Pentecost the Spirit did come upon them. There's not even some of the spiritual gifts at play here as we see a little bit later. So I can't subscribe to that one. The third option, nothing happened. It was an occasion, it meant something, but nothing in the moment actually happened to the disciples. That's another theory and I've got some sympathy with it. What it was, though, was Jesus symbolically gesturing uh, that, yes, 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 no, the Holy Spirit is coming. Now I've been risen, I will be ascended, and the Holy Spirit will come. It's just another emphasis on that journey. Wait, the Holy Spirit is coming. And I, as I say, I, I can see some sense in that view, but I can't get over the fact that Jesus breathed and he said, receive the Holy Spirit. It seemed to me that Jesus thought that something happened to them. And if Jesus seemed to think that something was happening to them, then then I think maybe something happened to them. And so the fourth one is that they were born again. They were born again. Forgive me if I'm using phrases that you're unfamiliar with. I hope to help you today and stick with us, and some of the other ones will become familiar as well. But I think for the disciples, this was the nearest equivalent to the moment when we today become Christians. This is the nearest equivalent to us who have lived post Jesus' resurrection. You see, the disciples were unique. They'd live and walk with Jesus while he was alive, but this was the first moment to put their faith in the risen Lord Jesus. Oh, he's there. He's alive. And they put their faith in him And the resurrection life of Jesus then came to them. And they received it for themselves. You know, the Bible uses a whole number of expressions to describe that moment. To describe the moment when someone, uh, to use our language, becomes a Christian. And we must realize that Christianity is something you have to become. It's not at birth. It's not automatic. It's not even gradual, even though the journey may be somewhat gradual for many of us. And there's still a moment, whether we can pinpoint it or not in our history, if we've already come to Christ. There's a moment when we were born again, when we became a Christian. And there are two such expressions that John uses right at the beginning of his book, which I think point forward to this moment that he's experiencing right here in front of the risen Jesus. The first one is this, children of God. In John chapter 1, verse 12, uh, really, this forms John's short theological introduction before he details the narrative of Jesus' life, 
death and resurrection, he explains something about how to become a child of God. He says this, to all who did receive him, talking of Jesus, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, nor of a husband's will, but born of God. There's a, a little formula here, being a bit analytical, I like formulas. If there's a formula for being a Christian, it's this. You're a child of God if, one, you believe in Jesus, plus two, you receive Jesus. To believe and receive Jesus gives you the right to be a child of God. And those three components are all here in this passage and the bit that just precedes it, the bit that Kevin touched upon last week as well. As Kevin pointed out, actually, this was the first occasion that Jesus referred to the disciples as children of God. The first time. John himself, who's writing this, told us back in verse 8 that he believed that Jesus had ridden from the dead as soon as he saw the empty grave. But he could only comment on his own faith and when that arrived. But now, for the others perhaps, seeing was believing. There he was, right in front of them, alive with wounds to show. This scarred man was he, their friend, their saviour, their Lord, their God. And they believed. In that moment, they were overjoyed. Why else would they be so overjoyed? They believe now. These reports they'd heard, yeah, Jesus is alive. Yeah, what do we make of that? He's alive, he's there. They believe that Jesus rose from the dead. And now is the moment they also received, and all that was consummated, all that came to be. When Jesus breathed and said, receive the Holy Spirit. And they did just that. They, they breathed in. His resurrection life. Jesus was still standing there, so it wasn't him coming into their hearts, but it was God by the Holy Spirit. You see, genuine faith doesn't just include believing an offer is genuine, but also receiving the benefits of that offer. I'm a bit of a sucker for the free coffee at Waitrose. Is anybody else in that category? Anybody? Yeah, a few of us. Yeah, yeah, sheepishly. And <laughs> like, did you know, if you're new in town, um, or, or you're from the north where they don't have Waitrose, apparently. We're going to North Wales this afternoon. I don't, I'm not sure if my Waitrose card is going to... I don't know. Maybe they do. Uh, I know why, because I used to work for, I used to do a bit of work for Waitrose, and they could only cope with taking stuff as, uh, in one day from Bracknell. If it, was, if it was too far to go there and back, they, they couldn't put a shop there. But they've probably got over that problem now. Anyway, if you buy anything in Waitrose, you're eligible for a free cup of coffee. Did you know that? I think you have to be 18. Sorry, guys. Sorry. Some of you, yeah, you'd be all right. Um, coffee might not be your tipple, but never mind. Uh, and I've worked out the cheapest thing in Waitrose. Do you know what it is? <laughs> this, is, this, is this is savvy shopper kind of expertise. I'm giving it to you for free. All right, a single banana, a single banana. I can't believe how cheap a banana is. An apple is about 50p, isn't it? An apple is about 50p, maybe even grown in this nation. But a banana's come around the world, even a fair trade banana, with all the reassurances that the workers have been provided for. Put it on the scales, weigh it up, press for the ticket, beep, 10p. Whoa, bargain, yeah? 
So I believe that this offer works. It doesn't matter how much you spend, they tell me. Okay, okay. Look round Waitrose and see what there is. Not much, is there, under a fiver. But there is a banana. And, but you have to believe. You have to believe also that you're not stealing when you go up to the machine and you go beep for your banana and then you search, cappuccino, £2.20, thank you very much, and you find your card, beep, and you walk out the shop having pressed with a coffee and a banana, 10p. Thank you very much. That's free advice there. You can have that, you can have that for free. Well, leave me a banana, though, won't you? Leave me a banana. But you have to put your trust that this is available. You have to be a little bit cheeky as well, don't you, Kinga? Yeah. You need to believe and receive to be a child of God. The second expression about becoming a Christian that John talks about right at the beginning of his book, that I think, again, is being outworked here, is about being born again. Uh, John records in a conversation that Jesus has with a religious leader called Nicodemus. In John 3, and Jesus replied to him, I tell you the truth, unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. That's very definite, isn't it? We don't like definite statements in our pluralistic world. They're kind of great against our culture, but that's what Jesus said. Unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. What do you mean? Uh, exclaimed Nicodemus. How, how can an old man go back into his mother's womb and be born again? That's a reasonable question. I understand where he's coming from. Jesus replied, I assure you, no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and the Spirit. Water referring to natural birth. Baby Blows was born last week, wasn't he? Uh, that's, we're all born naturally, physically, but also by the Spirit. Humans can reproduce only human life, but the Holy Spirit gives birth to spiritual life. Don't be surprised when I say you must be born again. Later referring to it as born of the Spirit. The term is a little bit loose. Born, of, born again, born of the Spirit, born of the Holy Spirit, different expressions but meaning the same thing. Now outwardly when that happens... It might not look dramatic, but inwardly, when you're born again, everything changes. You are reborn. You are born of the Spirit. You're made spiritually alive. You become a new creature, a new creation, something that you weren't. Now you are. Theologians refer to it as regeneration. You think, oh, that's a big word. Well, we know what regeneration means when we watch Doctor Who long enough. Because he, she comes back, somebody else, regenerated, new person. And at that point, at that moment, we receive the peace of God. We know we've been forgiven. We're assured of God's love for us. We know because we know because we know that we're adopted into his family and we're overjoyed. That's what happens. And you see, what's going to happen is when Jesus returns, because he's going to return, he will judge the living and the dead and he will then create again a new heaven and a new earth. This is going to be his principality of peace. This is going to be the kingdom of God outworked to the nth degree. This is going to be a new environment and a new world and a new society where only peace exists. 
not just as a hope, the fulfillment of all the shalom hopes over the generations. All those people looking for peace, wanting peace in different ways, individually in society, across the world, eternally, are now going to be fulfilled forever and ever. Therefore, it's only going to be those who've received the peace from Jesus that can go in. I mean, it makes sense. It's obvious when you think about it. It's only those who've been born of the Spirit, who are children of God, by His love and His grace, that can be part of this. So God's waiting. He is patient with you, with those around you, longing for more and more and more to come in and experience this awakening, this new thing in their lives, spiritual life, eternal life. Because only then can they come into the hope of peace for all eternity. I've got one other point I want to draw out, and that is this. God's peace propels us into battle. Some of us are going to Ashburnham in August as a church. We're keen to all go. Uh, still time to sign up. Ashburnham is a stately home and manor and grounds in, uh, in the direction of Hastings. We're going with all the other new ground churches so as to, together we can hear God's word, enjoy one another's company and be refreshed in his spirit together. But did you know that only five miles away from where we're going to be staying was the Battle of Hastings? On Senlac Hill, almost 954 years ago, two armies fought all day. Uh, the invader was William II of Normandy, and he won, by the way, and he killed the Anglo-Saxon King Harold II. Uh, you probably see the Bayeux Tapestry. There's Harold. I think that's him there, isn't it? With an arrow in his face. He died that day. In fact, the whole army was defeated in that moment. But it took another two and a half months before William became William the Conqueror, if you like, crowned King of England at Westminster Abbey on Christmas Day in 1066. And for those two and a half months, victory had been won, but battles were still being played out. There were battles in Dover and Wallingford, in Winchester and Southwark, but even then, once he was enthroned, there were still things to take place. All those Norman, uh, Normans had to cross over the channel, maybe it was known as the Norman Channel in those days, I don't know, and take possession of the stately homes and the manor houses and the noble titles and take possession of the land, quite literally, from the serfs and the peasants of this nation. And the rest is history, so they say. Maybe we're more French than we would have been uh, had it not been for that occasion that day. And if you like, we're living in those kind of days, those kind of days of outworking the victory that has been secured. Jesus rose victorious, conclusively beating the enemy. Yet the rest of AD history is going to involve all sorts of battles as we advance and see advancing his kingdom until Jesus comes again. It's the now and the not yet of the kingdom of God, which we understand and know something of. But in that time, we're on the front line, or we're meant to be, of his kingdom advance. 
There's that paradox of, of peace on the one hand and battle, which is the epitome still of Christian life as it's meant to be. It's a bit like those days after the walls of Jericho came down. They came down from a trumpet. And the walls fell down. God did something. But then, as a first victory, the Israelites were meant to go across the promised land and take possession of it. There'll be other battles, but the victory was won. God was with them. It's like the, what happened in those days after David slayed Goliath with a pebble. Goliath, the victory was won. It was one against one, this, this battle. Whoever won that battle won the war. David, with God's help, won it. And then the army was meant to go and pursue. Go and pursue the enemy as they run off. Go and grab the spoils that have been won. And there's something of that dynamic right here in this passage. You see, as soon as the disciples received Jesus' peace, he enrolled them into his army. He said this, as the Father has sent me, I am sending you, verse 21, sending you to continue what I have started and I'm still doing. See, Jesus was sent to the lost, to the sick, to the poor. He was sent to save and to heal and to restore, and he's sending us to do the same. Jesus also was sent to serve and to sacrifice and to suffer, and that is the path marked out for us also. But we go, we go with the knowledge of Christ's victory once and for all. We go with the news that Jesus is alive, and we go with the assurance and the presence of Jesus with us by his Holy Spirit. We go with the authority that Jesus has given us to share the good news and to call people to believe and receive him as we have, to believe that Jesus is alive. He rose from the dead to call them to receive the forgiveness that has been secured for them for their sin. To go and call them to receive the new and eternal life that Jesus has won in victory for them. The promise here is that, that some will. Some will respond well to that call. But the reality also is that others won't. And I think that, in essence, is what Jesus means when he says in verse 23, if you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. He's not saying you've got the power to forgive sins now. No, no, that, that stays with Jesus. That's him who forgives sins. But we have the task of telling his resurrection story of testifying, like some of us have been doing this morning, to his transforming power, and also of discerning people's response to that. Really? We've got that responsibility just to work out how people have reacted to the story, to the news of Jesus' resurrection. Yes, we do. It's a twisted evolution, actually, of this verse that has become the Roman Catholic practice of private confession and penance with a priest. That's not what Jesus had in mind here. It comes from this, or, you know, originally. Nevertheless, there is a role for us to discern how people respond to the good news of Jesus. Church, I'm talking to you at this moment. Are they born again or not? Should be a question in your mind quite regularly when you're meeting new people. 
when you're journeying through life with friends or family, when you're given opportunity to share something of your faith to people, when you're welcoming new folk amongst us as a church community. That's a question in your mind. Are, are they born again or not? It's not, to, it's not you're judging them, you're discerning. Are they responding? Because I've got this good news. This good news is something they've been listening to. Where are they up to? Where are they at? And you think, well, why do we need to know? Why do we need to try and work that out? Well, I, I think we need to know because it changes the conversation. Because we've been commissioned as well to go and baptize and to teach all the things that Jesus said to his disciples. So we need to know who are his disciples. We need to know who's come into discipleship with Jesus. Who's now born again? Who's now a child of God? Because it changes the conversation. We might still be presenting some of the same material, but in a different way. Even water baptism is one of those moments. Actually, when we think about it, we've decided, yes, this person's born again. We're deciding together, yes, this person is now a child of God. They've believed and received in Jesus. So we're happy to baptize them because that comes post the belief and the receipt of Jesus' new life. And so what we're doing when we're baptizing someone is we're declaring over them, you're a child of God. You're forgiven. You have new life in you. You are destined for eternity. That's what we're saying over that person's life. It's no more complicated than that. And so they can receive it because God wants them to be assured of their faith. He doesn't want them to be wondering, oh, am I saved? Aren't I saved? He doesn't want people to live like that. If you are, he wants you to know that you are because it fills you with confidence, not with pride at all because it was nothing to do with you. It was all God and his grace. You just brought sin and repented of it and put faith in him. And that's what we're doing. Because God wants to use different ones of us as the body of Christ to one another, one another. To declare good truth over one another. Because we can, because we know who you are. We know you're a child of God. So we do have that responsibility. So just to end, and then we'll have a song if that's all right, Jim. And then there'll be a couple of opportunities to be prayed for. Genuine, real, and lasting peace is only possible in God, but it is possible. When we become new creations, by believing Jesus rose from the dead and receiving his new life. And that is for us, and that is personal, but it is also for community, society, and the new thing that Jesus is building and will fill this earth with one day. So you need to be born again. If you want peace, you need to be born again. And then you'll have Jesus' peace with you. And then having received his peace, you receive also his call to arms. Having won the war, he calls you and me together to fight for the spoils of his victory by telling others of his resurrection, testifying to his life in ours, and calling people to put their faith in him. Amen. Amen. Wonderful.